Welcome to the Fitness Candor Podcast. Your host, Eric Feigl, will be bringing you the truth about exercise and the fitness industry. You'll hear from fitness professionals, exercise science professors and researchers, fitness industry entrepreneurs and leaders, as well as people who simply love to talk shop. Stick around after the show to learn how you can get your topic in an upcoming episode. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Fitness Canner Podcast. Jacob Riviera from uh, Exos, who's a performance specialist. He has his bachelor's degree in kinesiology from Arizona State with a minor in nutrition and healthy living. He joins us today to talk a little bit about movement and mindset, which I think is going to be a really interesting topic, something that I don't think we've covered a lot, but I'm extremely interested in as I feel it's, um, it's very important to get those two linked up for athletes and non-athletes alike and, and maybe for coaches and trainers uh, to have a little bit more of that in their back pocket to be able to, to use that. So, Jacob, thanks for joining the show, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm really excited to be here, Eric. Well, tell us a little bit more about your background and how it led you down the path that you're on now. Yeah, so um, kind of a long, drawn-out story, but uh, I promise it's a good one. So. Um, a long time ago, before I ever went to Arizona State University, Mark Verstegen's core performance book came out. Um, and that was kind of my first exposure to weightlifting or, or strength and conditioning or functional capacity, whatever you might call it. And uh, my dad and I, and my dad was a long PE teacher, long time PE teacher. We both kind of had this just, you know, obsession with fitness. And I got a lot of that from him. And so I had some exposure from Mark Verstegen and his book. And then when I got into college, I was a kinesiology student and I was also a nutrition minor. So what ended up happening was one of the bosses that I had at Arizona State left to go work for core performance, which, um, as you know, before we were exos, we were athletes performance and core performance and core yep. performance was kind of like the the, the corporate fitness or the corporate wellness route. And so he left uh, to go work for Core Performance. And lo and behold, one of my professors who used to work for Core Performance and was my sports nutrition teacher brought in the director of nutrition uh, for athletes performance at the time, Danielle Lafada. And Danielle Lafada kind of told us all about Exos and, and what they were doing at that time. And I was like, wow, this has got to be like the coolest company I've ever heard of. Um, and so I spoke with her after class and was like, hey, like, how can I get involved? What can I do? Can I shadow, et cetera? And uh, she told me about the internship. So eventually I had some support, you know, for the internship and some people that I knew. And I ended up in Phoenix, Arizona at our Exos Phoenix location and interned there in summer of 2013 and uh, just had an amazing experience. Um, Eric, I don't know if you know who Nick Winkleman or Brett Bartholomew or Nicole Rodriguez are, but those were the high-level strength and conditioning coaches that I got to spend some time under, learn with, and experience what kind of an introductory-level strength and conditioning was at, at the time when I was a college student. And I was just so overwhelmed at how awesome everything was, and um, following the internship, what ended up happening was 
I was offered a position with Core Performance in Chandler and uh, spent three years at Intel, kind of serving them um, through kind of our corporate fitness uh, product and strategies and, and things like that. And um, eventually a job opened up here in Texas with Children's Health Andrews Institute. Um, I had wanted to work with athletes. That was something that was kind of a dream of mine. And uh, I've been here for about a year and a half now, working with youth and high school athletes. And one of the awesome and most rewarding pieces of this job has been working with what we call our bridge athletes. So a bridge athlete is just an individual that has either been just recently cleared from physical therapy or is someone that is in physical therapy currently that needs more of a modified training program that kind of helps or assists them in getting back to the field and ensuring that they have the movement mechanics required by, you know, their high level sport that they play. And so I basically have exposure in those different realms. And um, that's kind of been my journey uh, up to this point. Well, that sounds like a really good one. And I am very familiar with, with uh, Bartholomew's work. I follow him and I like what he does. Very, very structured, very level-headed and organized and smart, you know, well-thought-out programming. And I didn't know you had a, a little bit of a corporate wellness background because I've got a little bit of that in, in my uh, mutt of a pedigree also. So it's, that's kind of cool <laughs> because I, I think a lot of people, uh, they don't really know what else is out there besides, you know, maybe coaching or training or going down into the, uh, you know, like the rehab side of things. And, like clinical settings, you know, they don't, they, they don't really get a bunch of play unless you have it in your building like that. If you're a corporate corporate person, you don't really understand what corporate wellness is. Right. So that's interesting. So I spent about two and a half years in, in that world. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, it teaches you a lot about, first of all, it makes you very thankful that you're doing, you know, if you're coaching or something else, you get to do something else. Cause there's a lot of downtime in corporate wellness that people don't think about, but at least it was for me. I don't, I don't know about you. Well, you know, absolutely. I, I, I really viewed corporate wellness as you really have to be the jack of all trades. And you're in situations where, you know, you have 5, 12, 20, 25 people that you're training at one time. Right. And a lot of times people will come up to you with questions for advice, with questions about nutrition, questions about pain that they're having in an area of their body. So I think corporate wellness is kind of the underrated position in our field because you really have to be the jack of all trades because unlike the position that I'm in now, I didn't have the opportunity to go speak with a physical therapist about what I was seeing, or I couldn't go and send a text or an email to one of our community liaisons that could set up an appointment with one of the orthopedic specialists. So like, I literally had to be a teacher, an educator, a uh, mobility specialist, a pain specialist, a fat loss specialist, anything that you can think of came up in that role. And I literally could not be more grateful for like the time that I spent there, you know, and on top of that, the relationships that you get to build, uh, it's unparalleled where that can take you. And I honestly would never change that kind of first job that I spent three years there. Like it, it was amazing. Well, it sounds like you had a really good experience and I, I definitely did too. I just, I really enjoy having, I mean, 
from my side of things where I was, I, I didn't have as much uh, freedom, I guess, you know, to, to explore and do, do things I was really interested in. You know, there was no nutrition counseling. There was no, it was basically teaching exercise classes, managing the floor, and I was building exercise programs when I could schedule them. You know what I mean? Like, eh, it was very, very good when it was there, but um, I'm glad I'm out of it. So, to be, to be honest. <laughs> but, uh, so, let's dive a little bit into this, this movement mindset that you and I had discussed earlier, because I think that's a really interesting topic I want to drill down on. So, describe that a little bit more. Yeah, so, one of the, one of the things that's happened to me recently is, over the past year and a half, I've gotten a lot more exposure to physical therapy. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that talk about strength and conditioning and physical therapy or athletic training being all kind of these individual silos where people need to live, they need to stay there, they need to understand their role. And what I found is that I actually try to do as much as I can to bridge the gap between them with understanding movement and where a lot of the movement mindset comes from is, is, is something that we do at Exos. We, we don't really look at joint actions. We look at how those, how, how those different joints create a movement pattern. And what we mean by movement pattern is we're talking about the primal movement patterns that everybody should have the ability to do. And where that kind of starts, not only in, in, in how we do the movement mindset, but, the patterns come from the FMS. So for those of you that don't know what the functional movement screen is, definitely start to look into that. The functional movement screen takes everybody through those seven movement patterns. And we get insight into, are there issues or deficiencies in those basic movement patterns? Meaning deep squat, trunk stability, rotary stability, lunge, turtle step, and also um, they have also a toe touch and a, a, a shoulder clearing test. But basically, those are all the fundamental movement patterns that every human should be able to do. So quite literally, Eric, do I use that sort of mindset to create my programming? And if they don't have the movement patterns that they need, I need to figure out from a mobility or stability standpoint, how do I get them to go back to optimal functioning so that they can actually move freely in those positions? Um, and in terms of like how I might actually program those, I kind of consider everything to be included within these different categories. There's always going to be some type of lunge pattern in my programming, some type of hinge, some type of push, some type of pull, some type of squat, some type of total body movement. There could also be two others that I added to this recently where you're talking about rotational movement or movements that your goal is to anti-rotate, meaning I need to be able to resist forces um, either in the lateral plane, the anterior plane, transverse plane, et cetera. So the right. movement mindset really comes from the SMS and then how I can use that to develop more high quality movement in those opportunities at the beginning of a session in the, what we call their movement preparation and then continuing to support that in their strength training when they're actually with me. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up movement preparation because I had a podcast yesterday with uh, Teddy, Dr. Teddy Wilsey, which maybe you've uh, seen some of his stuff. And he has done uh, a lot uh, in regards to that, that um, 
you know, prepping people's movement patterns. Because I think that's something that when we hear, and he doesn't use the word, and I'm going to start ch- kind of changing my terminology, but he doesn't use the word or the words warm up. He uses that, that movement pattern uh, and that movement rec- pattern recognition terminology more because it's part of it's part of the program it's not just something that a person can do like jumping on a treadmill elliptical and then thinking they're you know good to go for the workout right so we're getting that we're getting the uh, central nervous system firing and things like that which i I find that very interesting um one thing i do want to ask you about is what do you consider a total body movement because i'm 100 percent on board with with everything that you're programming and i'm wondering what you consider a total body movement so, so let's think of something like a dumbbell squat to press. So what we understand is that the, the, the force is being created from the lower body, but it's then being transferred through the core into the upper body. So something like a squat to press, something okay. like a clean, something like a snatch, something like a push press. Those kind of movements in and of themselves, I think, because of the triple extension that's occurring in the lower body that's transferring force into let's say the upper body i kind of have kind of just a unique perspective on how those movements are considered because you could say that they're a push but i understand that it's still coming from foot into hand in order to produce the force of that movement right yeah two like they're they're separate i get i get exactly what you're saying like they're, they're separate identities and you're combining the two Absolutely, for sure. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit more. I'm interested how how you combine all of this into, uh, I guess you could say, like injury prevention or reducing the chance of someone becoming um, injured. Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about injury prevention lately, and it it has a lot to do with the fact that I meet with the physical therapist at the Andrews Institute, and you know, if you don't know what the Andrews Institute is, for those listening. Dr. Andrews is a world-renowned surgeon who's done a lot of elite-level surgery for different orthopedic problems, but most specifically, often occurring both in the elbow and also the knee. So that is where a lot of the influence comes from, is the Andrews Institute and the physical therapist that I'm working with, where we literally are putting our hands on kids or athletes who've had these issues in the past. Um, But in terms of like where where I feel like my role is for injury prevention, it, it, it's going to sound so simple, but I think it's, it's, it's how this kind of relates to what people are doing incorrectly, maybe in the strength and conditioning world, or yeah. even not doing enough of in, in their everyday life or in an athlete's life. Um, and the first thing that I'm considering for injury prevention is first off making sure that the FMS is clean. Make sure that there's no red flags or stark asymmetries in the FMS where I'm saying, whoa, 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 why is this movement pattern not how it should be? And then from there, the other thing I'm going to start looking at, Eric, is their ability to breathe. Now, that kind of sounds kind of like an outlandish thing to wonder is, do they know how to breathe correctly? But in all seriousness, because of a a course that I took called the DNS course, which stands for dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. I've pretty much, I've pretty much had a total revamp of, of the way that I program. And so the other thing I want to do is make sure that they know how to breathe. 
Do they know how to breathe through their diaphragm where they don't feel like they're creating all of this force through their shoulders, their neck, and their um, kind of their thoracic extensors? And I want them to actually understand how do I breathe with my diaphragm? And then how do I create a stabilization strategy where I'm allowing my diaphragm to push down into my lower, or my lower stomach? And then do I know how to stabilize the spine with the correct musculature in those very basic or primal positions that, let's say, um, where the information comes from like a, a baby who starts on their back, they learn how to roll over, they learn how to go into quadruped, and um, eventually learn how to stand. So the other thing I'm looking at is how they breathe. Do they breathe correctly? Do they stabilize correctly? And then from there, once I see that the FMS is clean, they know how to breathe, I'm also going to start looking at all of their different movement patterns that we just discussed before. And does the FMS hide or highlight their movement patterns? And do they have the ability to do all of those? And then from there, my job then becomes pretty simple. Strengthen, enhance, increase their technical capacity in both reactive and scenarios where they are tired or fatigued. Um, to be quite honest, I think strengthening and enhancing those movement patterns with load or, or different implements is key. But I think what no one has looked at enough of is how athletes operate under fatigue. Because how often have you heard that kids are tearing their ACL in fourth quarter of games in a non-contact scenario, but you also find out that they had had three hours of sleep for a week. They right. had almost no nutrition or fueling during that time period. And they had gone from a morning practice to a morning lift to school to uh, another practice and then a game the next day. And all of a sudden their whole livelihood is completely changed because nobody looked at how do you operate in a reactive scenario or in a scenario where you have fatigue and how does fatigue change your movement patterns and kind of your movement strategies? Well, I want to circle back to something because that, all that is like spot on, I think. Uh, and I'm very, I'm familiar with, uh, with DNS. I had someone on speaking about that uh, a few podcasts ago, but, but the idea that, you know, you mentioned this may sound simple. I don't think that that should even be, that should even be like a disclaimer because the simpler we can make things for people, I think are the very best. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. I'm a big proponent of taking a step back and trying to realize what somebody needs before what they want. Like, obviously, you know, if you're talking about that basketball player, of course they want to play, right? But they need everything else that you just mentioned before that they need the sleep. They need rest. They need uh, maybe some mental downtime. So all of these things kind of come together and so when you look at injury prevention, I, I think you're, you're right when you say that, you know, we're only looking at one facet. People are only looking at one facet of an athlete, and maybe that's like, okay, well, this person had a, a torn ACL. Why did that tear? Uh, it's because he pivoted this way, because uh, he had a weak X, Y, Z. And that may not be the entire picture. So I, I think that's, that's a very unique perspective for sure. Yeah, you know where I think the, the, the problem really starts, too, when, when kids are young. Um, I don't know how it is in Ohio, um, but here in Texas, like, when I say sports are huge, I'm saying sports are huge. And if you were to walk into uh, what they call Fieldhouse USA here, which is kind of a, um, a conglomerate of, of, of fields or courts, 
and they kind of are the officiators for tournaments and different things like that. So it's a big kind of AAU filter system, so to speak. And you watch these kids and they're doing competitive sports at five or six years old. And they have coaches and organizations and clubs dedicated to six-year-old basketball. And they're being taught from ages of six years old that winning is absolutely everything. So this mindset has basically like permeated the entire state here of Texas from when kids are about six years old. And so when they get to junior high or high school level, not only are they receiving more pressure about success and doing all of the practice and skill components that they need, all of a sudden it becomes nothing to do with the athlete and everything to do with the sport, the team, or winning. And so none of these kids are actually taught how to move or what the process looks like for strength and conditioning or why stress and fatigue and recovery have a relationship with one another. And, and these kids end up injured because number one, they don't know how to move. Number two, their coaches don't know how to sit them because they've got parents yelling up their ear and they're right. paying thousands of dollars for, for um, that team. And all of a sudden we finally get the butt end of that where maybe two years, three years, five years, 10 years, they've been doing this. And all of a sudden their knee hurts and it doesn't stop or never goes away. And it's like, is that a movement pattern thing? Is it a recovery thing? Is it all of the above? What is it? But I can't tell you how tough it is to be in that situation where these kids are coming to us and expecting, you know, and parents for that matter, expecting us to make their athlete like clean and make them a hundred percent just so that they can go back to their sport and do it again. Right. Yeah. The, the, the template you just described of, you know, if you're, if you're grown up, and first of all, let me, let me, let me first say that I'm sure Texas trumps um, anything in a like football's high school football is very big in, in Ohio, especially in Cincinnati. But uh, I'm sure Texas pretty much trumps like every kind of sport. <laughs> because <laughs> from what I've heard, not only from you, but it's, you know, sports are like live or die. So, but we have, when you have a, a child growing up in, in that mental atmosphere where they're no matter where they go, whether it's at school, whether they're at home from their parents, and then they go to, to all these practices and they're traveling on the weekends where it's force fed the entire time to go, go, go hard, hard, hard it becomes their norm. So you're probably trying to reteach these athletes, you know, some, some mental um, breakthroughs like, okay, we have, we have to remold what it means to be a young athlete, right? And if you don't have parents on the back end that are in support of that, I mean, you're, I can't imagine you're probably chasing your tail and just dying over it. Yeah. And, and, you know, all of this pretty much directly relates to, why long-term athletic development needs to be more strongly and more evidence supported or more looked at by kind of like that full interdisciplinary team. Um, and, and that's really kind of the issue that we're trying to get, not get rid of, but educate or, or, or make or carve into because we're almost, it's not that we're at a loss for like why kids are this way, but we definitely are at a loss here at the Andrews Institute. Like how do we make an impact and continue to make that impact over time? Because the other thing that Dr. Andrews is dealing with and all the pediatric surgeons are dealing with is 
how many surgeries that they do every week on the same injuries over and over and over. So um, it's, it's a unique issue. I think there are some solutions and answers out there. You know, I'm doing my best for sure, but it's a huge problem that I definitely think needs to be addressed by more people, more people looking at it, more organizations taking it more seriously, etc. Definitely, definitely. So another thing that you and I had touched on was coaching science and cueing. And uh, again, you had a very, uh, another very unique perspective. And I'm really into this cueing thing right now because obviously it's, it's so important. And uh, I, mentioned, I mentioned Dr. Teddy Wilsey earlier, and he and I had a very good discussion about how important cueing is, uh, both verbal and hands-on. And um, I, I think that plays a really big factor into, into training athletes and, you know, general population as well. So give us your take on that. So in terms of how I view cueing or, or feedback or these different things, we kind of first have to look at what are we cueing or yep. why do we cue or why does feedback matter? Well, part of the issue kind of actually stems from motor control and development so as babies we understand entirely how to or we first learn how to organize our spine and then we have the ability to roll over and get into quadruped before kneeling and then standing up our brain was growing at such a rapid rate and our body was developing so quickly that we had to learn how to do those different things well what ends up happening is as we grow older the more times that we spend or the more time that we spend sitting the less time that we spend moving so Almost for anyone that you can think of, you almost have to go through that re-education process again. And you have to think of, how can I get this individual to move how I want? And then also make or allow that athlete or individual to go from thinking about it to something that's more unconscious and happens naturally at the snap of a finger. So depending upon how uh, large your groups are, or um, if you're in a one-on-one -on -one scenario or 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 even you know, very, very large groups. There's a few different strategies that you can utilize that I think really, really help to utilize these strategies. So for example, if you're just watching someone do, let's say a Romanian deadlift, um, and I guess the other name for that, Eric, is stiff leg deadlift or straight leg deadlift. We call it RDL, but um, yep. it's probably, yep. <laughs> it probably doesn't matter either way. But so one of the biggest things I see if you're gonna do or teach a Romanian deadlift is, you already know that you're going to see knees that are locked, legs that are locked, and you're going to see people bend over thinking that they're doing an RDL, and it mm -hmm. ends up looking like this, like, horrible, ugly, turtle shell, like, reaching yeah. for your toes thing, and you're like, oh, my God, your mid-back looks like it's going to break in half. Right. So uh, one, of the, one of the best coaches I know, his name is Joel Sanders. He works with our Exos in Phoenix, and... I got to intern under, under him, and he kind of has these ways of creating stories or analogies around a movement. So one of his that I've stolen and used many times is, I want you to imagine that you're on a cruise ship. I want you to imagine that your hips are level with the edge of the ship or the edge of the railing. And what I want you to do is push your hips back and peer your torso over the edge of the ship so that you're looking down at the water. From there, stand up nice and quick, and all of a sudden, you've done an RDL. And you never referenced what was going on at the knees, you never referenced what was going on at the hips, and you never really referenced what was going on at the spine, 
but yet you may or may not get a perfect RDL without ever referencing those individual joints. Right. So I think stories and analogies are some of the best ways to start if you're just talking about very specific movements. Um, and the same thing could be done for squats. Uh, one of the easiest and simple ways I can get kids or, or adults squatting is I'll say something really, really simple like this. I'll say, go ahead and stand with your feet about shoulder width apart. It's okay to allow for about 10 to 15 degrees of toe movement or toe to the outside. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I want you to move up and down like an elevator and bring your hips towards the back of your heel or the back of your shoe. And all of a sudden, I get a torso that looks upright. All of a sudden, I get uh, knees that are aligned with toes and hips that are aligned with knees. And I, once again, we didn't reference any of the joints. But what ends up happening when you use analogies and cues in this way is all you have to do is say, the next time that you see that individual, hey, do you remember that story that I told you about squatting? And let's see if maybe you can pick up on what you were getting wrong. And all of a sudden, they kind of like shake their head for a moment. They're like, oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, you never reference the movement, and it moves perfectly without you even saying anything, which is, which is really awesome. Um, that, is, that is really awesome. I, I, think that's, I think that's huge to use stories. And um, that kind of factors into, you know, is, is this thing, this coaching that we're doing with our athletes or with our, our clients, is it more scientific or more of an art? Um, I'm starting to have this conversation more and more with the, the people that, that, that are around me because a lot of times I hear those kind of things that you're talking about. It's not necessarily, we're not being scientific. We, we are being very practical about what we're saying to people, making them understand. And then later on, you can kind of drop in some, some knowledge, some science here and there. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that you've, I've, I'm sure that you've said this to people, you know, like if they're squatting, I mean, how many times have you walk by somebody and just kind of pointed and said elevator and boom. Oh yeah. Right. Elevator. And they, and they get those, you know, that, that cueing back, they cue themselves almost, you know, or they, they, you cue the, the elevator and they recorrect themselves. Yeah. So one of the, one of another, another great mentor of mine, his name is Dennis Logan. And uh, he left Exos recently to um, go work with the Cleveland Browns. He's an assistant strength and conditioning coach there. Um, one of the best things he shared with me about coaching and, and, and feedback and all of these different things is you want them to know what you know without ever needing you. And that was one of the things that really kind of changed the foundation of how I coach is you're trying to do the absolute best that you can educate and motivate so that eventually that someone can go from a novice level to an expert level and be able to provide feedback to themselves, be able to correct themselves, and then be able to do everything on their own with guidance or support from you. I think yeah. so often people are so overcritical about how they cue people or so overcritical about the things that they say about movement that somebody always has to look at their trainer and ask, is, that, is this correct? Am I doing it right? Instead yep. of, let's say an athlete's going and do an acceleration sprint and they didn't push their back heel into the floor enough and get that triple extension position. And all they have to do is walk over to you and say, yeah, man, I didn't push the earth away. And all you have to do is shake your head and just say, let's see what we can do to fix that. And then they right. go do a rep on their own. They do it on their own. And all of a sudden it looks pretty. Like 
that's the perfect moment for a coach. Oh my to gosh! Instill all this information where yep. someone can cue themselves, and literally, you just sit back with your arms crossed. They know exactly what to do. You know exactly uh, what maybe verbiage you're using over and over, where you just have to kind of look at them a certain way, and they're like, "Yeah, I know." And I you're like, awesome. "Yes, yes!" Oh my god! Greatest <laughs> moment ever. And, That's so uh, awesome. So, my coaching moment, I try to create those coaching moments where I've used enough stories or said things enough the same way like 10,000 times where I'm only 25, Eric, but I swear like sometimes when I coach, it sounds like I'm an 85-year-old saying, what do I always <laughs> say when we do this? Or what do I always <laughs> say? And so I just want the whole, I don't care if they're high school, I don't care if they're 18 or 12 years old, I want them to tell me the things over and over. And so that it gets in their head and that they can kind of do all of that kind of stuff on their own. And I, I, I try to do a hands-off approach to be honest. Um, but that's kind of that. Yeah, no, that you said it perfectly. And I can, I can hear like the excitement in your voice. Cause I get totally jacked when I see somebody correct themselves and I don't say anything. I can be training a group of four and I, and I start walking over to somebody doing like, you know, a movement that I know they can do better. And all I have to do is like, take, take a couple steps forward they notice me and then they're like, Oh, all right, straighten up, you know, or, or flatten back or heels down or whatever, whatever the cueing thing is. And you and I just, I just give them a thumbs up, nod my head. I turn around. I'm like, that's, that is because it's obvious that you're still needed. Right. But you're not, your job isn't always to constantly flatten back, flatten back, flatten back, flatten back. Just, you know, those cues eventually dig in so deep that like you said, that little look, or that maybe, you know, the point or the touch is just, is all they need. And then you're on to the next thing, bam. And that gives them, Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's important though for coaches to take the next step and tell their athletes like why that's important or tell their, their people that they're working with why that's important. Hey, that's, or at least recognize that they're, they're doing that and congratulate them or give them some kind of uh, feedback on their feedback. It's like, Hey, I noticed that you cleaned that up and it looked awesome. I do remember when you couldn't do it that way. You couldn't do it by yourself. Now you're doing it. That's awesome. Keep doing that. You know, given that kind yeah, of feedback yeah. is super important too. Yeah, absolutely. And like, there's, there's so many different strategies out there in terms of like the timing of feedback. So, you know, as someone is educated on a movement and you've hammered home a certain amount of things, you'll notice that the feedback actually decreases and that kind of comes comes from an idea of feedback bandwidth where like when errors are kind of outside what is acceptable that's your moment to go and correct it and once everything's happening within a correct bandwidth you move on you move on to the more complex um, issue you move on to the the things that are difficult for that person and giving them that one takeaway needs to occur like once in a session during one movement at one time. The moment yeah. that you are like going in there and creating feedback around 10, 12, 13 different movements, you've lost them. But yep. if you can hone in on that beautiful moment of you corrected yourself, acknowledge it, just like you said, and you move on to the next thing because that's what you want them to be confident in, recognize it, and now it's time for something else. Exactly. I think I see that the most, like for myself, I'm kind of flipping through exercises in my head and people I work with. And I see that a lot, like when you're teaching a push-up. and I usually, when I teach a push-up, I usually start with an incline push-up, um, on like a Smith machine or something. 
and I see, you know, I, I tell them, hey, get, get set up to what you think a push-up looks like. And then we go through the performance. Like, I'll let them do a few reps. And then I say, now try it with your elbows tucked in. And I kind of work from, like, head to toe. Tuck them in a little bit. Okay, great. Do a couple more reps. And then I go down. Okay, now do it with your hips, even with your back. Boom, good. Now do it with your feet a little further away from the bar. And next thing you know, it's, but it's systematic. It's broken down. The next time they walk up, it's, it's like, okay, they're thinking to themselves, elbows in, butt flat, feet apart, and, they're, and most of the time they're good to go. But I think when coaches really get in trouble is when they, they expect everybody to catch on to everything. Hey, tuck your elbows in, now flatten your back, and have your feet out. What am I supposed to focus on, coach? Like, what, what are you telling me to do? Because now it's not about the movement. Now it's not about the exercise. Now it's about all these random things that you threw in place, you know. And, uh, yeah, I think that's super important, man. I'm, I'm glad you're excited about that because that needs to be talked about more. Yeah, honestly, the, the level of excitement is, is it, parallels, <laughs> it parallels an Olympic lifter getting a world record. And the moment they put that weight down, that first, like, jump in the air where they clap their hands and they pound yeah. their chest, like – yeah. That's the kind of moments I want to create. And it all starts with delivering an experience. And I think, I think mm-hmm. you understand that Eric in, in what you do as a trainer, as a coach and um, an educator, like that's what we live for. And I think that's why, or at least a piece of why we're all in the industry, because we know we have the ability to create those moments. And then it's about delivering an experience where you're able to teach coach and educate someone through this process of how do I make my life better than it is or how do I make my performance better than it is on the field? And you get to kind of clean your hands or, or wipe your hands once they're done because you're like, I had those moments. That's what I, that's what I do. And now they're, now they're successful in whatever they were trying to do. Yeah. Do you feel – this is kind of a personal question, I guess. Do you feel that like if you're, if you're training someone, an athlete, whoever – and they execute that maybe at the, the end of their workout and everything's finished up. Do you feel kind of like you, you need to tell another coach or somebody around you, do you will not believe what just happened? Like I just, they, they, I just crushed this workout. Like you're just excited for the workout that you gave them, you know, but it's kind of like this thing where you want to tell like another trainer, dude, you will not believe like everything was clicking and they cued themselves. Everything was in a flow and it was perfect, but it's almost like, I don't know. Because we're coaches and it's not about us, it's almost like uh, you, know, you, you can't talk about that. And I wish, I wish coaches shared their successes for themselves maybe just a little bit more than their athletes. Even though I know that their successes for their athletes automatically equates to like, oh, that, that the coach is doing something right. But I feel like the personal, the personal stuff, the stuff that makes us excited about doing the job, I think we need to like have what we, you, know, you and I are doing now, like saying this is great and i love it and this is why we do it and i i like that enthusiasm i think that that plays a big part in you know like you said why we do what we do well you know what i think i think brett bartholomew touches on this a lot about um how ego and narcissism or or what he kind of calls these dark-sided traits can be beneficial in this sort of realm now there's kind of a fine line where a lot of people try to take credit, and he talks about this a lot. People try to take credit for their team, their organization, their win-loss record, their success in a tournament, a success at, you know, at the highest level. It could be a Super Bowl. It could be a gold medal. Now, 
I think when the excitement is surrounding what you do and how you do it and like showcasing the trainer or the coach and what they do can be the wrong way to put it. Now, sure. if you are more excited for the athlete and their success, I absolutely think that that's exactly what this industry needs more of, where we're able to share those amazing stories that we're able to create and find ways to, to help other coaches see or, or find those kind of passion moments again. And, and that's yeah. kind of honestly the, uh, the biggest, not struggle, but something that I, I think about and, and, and I lose sleep over is we, so we have, we have interns um, uh, with us every semester. So there's a summer semester, there's a fall semester and there's a spring semester. Well, one of our, one of our, part of our, what we do is we have an education curriculum. So every week they, we follow along with what our coaching and, and lectures and practicals surrounding our system. And one of those topics it, that will always come up within that whole um, curriculum is art of coaching and finding a way to get through an intern's head, a, a 21 year old, a 22 year old, a 23 year old head that delivering those experiences or creating those moments are what the industry is about. And they have, they have all these other lectures that are surrounding, you know, sets and reps and, uh, strength and power schemes and, and conditioning strategies. And then all of a sudden this art of coaching comes up and it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me that strength and conditioning is not about sets and reps. Well, hold on. You're saying it's about delivering an experience. So trying to educate an intern on how that's supposed to go, like is probably one of the hardest things on the planet is, okay, take all the knowledge that you've learned up to this point, take all the sets and reps, now go coach the group. And you're like, yeah. wait, 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 something's missing. I'm not doing this right. Uh, is it three sets of 10 or four sets of 12? So it's, it's, it's a conundrum. It's a, it's, uh, there's, there's so many different ways to look at it, but like, I know for a fact that that's what I want to instill in my interns who are eventually going into the field or even working for us is how do I, how do I teach that? That's yeah. hard to teach, Eric. Right? Like that's that's yeah. like how do you create a curriculum on that? Yeah. And put sets and reps aside because that I don't think has ever been the issue with strength and conditioning is what's the right sets and reps? No. Yeah. It's how do I keep this person coming back, wanting right. more? Yeah. Um, how do I instill my passion in their lifestyle? Um, and and kind of look at it that way. That, dude, I'm I wish I wasn't sitting in my truck because I, I got goosebumps and I'm I'm so fired up now because I, I teach a, a personal training business course at Cincinnati state. I just started. Okay. This is like my fourth week and, and I'm going through the process of, of teaching these things to people, you know, how to program correctly. And I'm helping others. They're coming from other classes where they're just starting to do these things. And like you said, you know, these, these are kids right out of high school. Some are, um, you know, maybe a little bit older. So, I'm going through all these things and I realize I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm teaching all these by the book kind of things. Make sure your, your reps and sets are, you know, all this stuff that, that maybe it's not the most important, but it's funny you mention all that because today we're, we're kind of going to wrap up on delivering their first workout to a client after going through the park queue and, uh, you know, going through like the needs assessment, being smart about, uh, about their, their assessment, do the smart assessments. 
And then we're going to take this, all this eventually, and we're going to learn cues. We're going to learn how to transfer all this stuff to make it more enjoyable, like you said, like deliver an experience to the client so they want to come back. They want to know what you're going to teach them again. Even if it's like the simplest things, which if you see one of my workouts, man, like you might fall asleep. It's super simple, but it, it you know, I mean, I'm, I'm doing my thing and I, I love it. I think my clients are enjoying it. So, but anyway, I want to get those, these, these students into the weight room next week and we're going to start working these cues. And I'm going to ask them like, was that enjoyable? Did you like that workout? Not was it a good workout? You know, if you're sweating, doesn't mean it doesn't mean you enjoyed the workout. It might've been good. Actually, it might've, it might've sucked. You can still sweat. My point is, are you, would you come back to that coach? Would you come back to this trainer? If not, give them feedback and then let's work on this. Let's build this. You can, you can put all, all this stuff that you have, all this knowledge, and you can wrap it up and you can deliver a service that is unlike anybody else's. And I, I, I think that's so important. I'm so important. <laughs> well, well, I'll let you take a deep breath over there, Eric. But, um, you know, I definitely want to just say that, you know, one of the things that I've learned when delving into that realm is the fact that it is not a soft science. It, it is entirely a hard science. If you type in connection or relationships or uh, communication strategies, leadership, presenting, all of these kind of strategies that surround how do I interact with people? How do I, you know, there's, as you know, there's that book, how to win friends and influence people. Like all of this stuff is becoming a hard science and you can look at specific evidence on how to deliver an experience. And there's a lot of things that go into that. And yep. I don't think people are focusing enough on that. Nope. And, you know, part of my passion is, finding as much as I can about that information and, and how I can then allow that to permeate what I do on a daily basis. And yeah, it's going to look different for a 12 year old than it's going to look for a 45 year old man who's trying sure. to lose some weight. And sure. it's kind of funny that you said fall asleep to my programs. You should see my 11 or 12 year old programs. They typically do about three exercises when they're strength training with me. And you better believe that those look crisp and clean and beautiful. Um, yeah. But yeah, oh, yeah. It's super boring. <laughs> but that's and I don't want to go back down another tangent but that's I mean, there's nothing wrong with that there's we can get back to the basics sometimes and you know when you have you've got like a, a young a young person who's maybe let's say 12 years old or something uh and who already has like a a clean bill of health let's say you have like the ideal 12 year old who just can drop into a squat no problem no vagus no vagus movement in the knees and you know their hips are in a good spot their upper back's in a good spot and you're just focusing on that and explaining to them why it's important, man, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing better for that person. So, but, but look, Jacob, I think we hit on a ton and I'm definitely going to have you back on. Cause I know there's, there's a list of other things you want to get across to people, but if people have any questions, comments, concerns about what uh, we talked about today, where's the best way to get a hold of you? So, so I'd probably say the two easiest ways and, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like nobody goes on Facebook anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so the two easiest ways are going to be through email. Um, and my email is jrivera at teamexos.com. And my Instagram, which is probably the place where I probably put the most 
you know, I've put a little bit of my personal life, but a lot about coaching and, and, and things like that. Um, and that's going to be Jacob PR seven. And, um, those are pretty much the two best ways. Follow me or email me, ask me any questions. Um, I, I am the epitome of, I will sit here and have a call with you for an hour and discuss everything that I do. And same thing with on Instagram. If you, if you see something you like, ask me about it. I'll delve into everything that it involves. And I'm an open book. I'm so used to having interns around that ask questions and I've always felt like that's my best way to serve the industry is just be as open as I possibly can and share my experiences, share my story, share my past mistakes and et cetera. So awesome. There you have it, Eric. Awesome, brother. I, I appreciate your enthusiasm and I'm not kidding. We're, we're, we, we in this thing. I want to get us on a, another podcast to talk more. So Jacob, I appreciate you and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Eric. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to suggest a topic or be a part of the show, get in touch with Eric on any social media platform at Eric Feigl or email fcp at ericfeigl.com. Make sure to check back every Tuesday and Thursday for more fitness candor. <laughs>